Our gospel lesson this morning comes to us from the gospel according to Luke, the 12th chapter, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable, a land which a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample good laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasure for themselves, but are not rich toward God. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray together. Loving God, in all the noise and din that comes into our ears, we ask that we can set aside the voices that are not of your own. That we may truly hear your word and that it'll seize our hearts and bring us evidence of your grace so that we may glorify your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our Gospel lesson today, Jesus talks about a rich man who got richer. Have you ever heard such a thing? I know. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. Who's ever heard of such a ridiculous premise? But the parable begins in verse 16. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. I've never heard of such a thing. It stretches the imagination to imagine a rich person just got richer. Okay, Jesus. I don't know where you're going with this, but let's see. So what happened to set up this fantastical tale, this amazing set of circumstances, was another equally absurd proposition. Somebody died without a will, so the eldest son inherited all their property according to tradition. And the inheritor's younger brother came to Jesus and said, Tell my brother to divide the family estate with me. Have you ever known a circumstance where family members ended up arguing over an inheritance? Absurd! Wow! Well, seriously, what I find interesting about today's gospel is how the people started treating Jesus like some sort of TV reality show judge or an advice columnist. You can see him writing to the paper, Dear Jesus, my father died a few weeks ago, and I didn't have, and he didn't have a will. He'd worked hard all his life. My brothers and I helped him build quite a large estate. My oldest brother was even able to attend Pharisee College in Jerusalem, but my father didn't allow me to go to college because he quote needed me to help work the farm end quote. Now my dad has died, and my brother came home claiming he deserved to inherit the entire farm and also much cattle. I need you to tell my brother that his behavior is selfish and that he should divide the estate with me. Signed, 
brokenhearted in Bethany. And Jesus responds, Dear broken, I just finished a sermon about the end of the world. You weren't listening. Signed, Buzz Off. What is so relatable about these passages is how they are so relatable. Two brothers fighting over an estate, a rich man who just got richer. This is the stuff for us of everyday life. Now, the point of the little story about the little richy rich guy, in both Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, the law commands that when you are harvesting your fields, you harvest once. If you forget a sheave of wheat, or you don't get all the olives off the tree in the first pass, or some grapes are left behind because your workers weren't careful, you don't get a second shot. That stuff left behind is there for the travelers, the widows, the orphans, those without land. It's there for the poor. Just leave it for them. And the passage in Leviticus ends with, I am the Lord your God. That somehow leaving behind for others is an acknowledgement of God's own sovereignty. To leave something behind for somebody else is the very essence of trust. I don't need it. I had my turn. Someone else needs to be blessed, so I will let it be. It reminds me of that passage that we read in uh, papers from the from the gospel just a, a few months back. I don't know if you noticed that Jesus left us a parable, um, and it was only about two years ago. Um, I remember it clearly. The passage went like this. There was a great plague in the land, and people struggled to breathe. So great was the pestilence that people were unable to travel or engage in the marketplace except to gather essentials. One day, a man went out to a warehouse store and saw there was much toilet paper. Fearing shortage, he bought it all and brought home all of the toilet paper so that no one else could find toilet paper in the land, and there was much weeping. After the man had carted the toilet paper to his home and put it in his basement, he said, This is great! Now I have toilet paper to last me the whole pandemic. I will take my ease, work from home, and have all of my other groceries delivered. And then he began to have a dry, unproductive cough, the story went. It felt as if many camels were sitting on his chest. And God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the toilet paper you have prepared, who you shall not use it, for you will be wiped away. You remember that story? See, the problem with accumulation is this. The capacity to accumulate only increases our desire to devour. Like the little fish being eaten by the big fish, and the big fish being eaten by an even larger fish. And long after we have everything that we need, we keep on accumulating until the biggest fish of all comes and devours us. As the theologian Jürgen Moltmann said of this parable, death is that which devours us after we have attempted to devour everything else. Jesus has just finished preaching about the endurance of the faithful through coming persecutions. And this man comes up who cannot make peace with his own brother because there's a dispute over an inheritance. If we're supposed to learn anything from estates, it should be that people die, and they can't take any of it with them. 
Instead, it seems what we learn is that we haven't died yet, so we should fight over the stuff that we're going to have to relinquish in a few years when we're gone. What's more important? Jesus says what your father has left you in the will, will you invest in your future? Yes, your father had a farm, but he also left you another family inheritance. He left you a brother. Which is more important? The imagery in our reading today from the book of Hosea harkens back to God's love for Israel way back when the nation was young. But a child, God says, a child whom God chose to hold close, cheek to cheek, bending down to feed them. And the prophet Hosea says that now they are fighting and raging and devouring one another, bent on turning away. And as Jesus said, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Now don't misunderstand the sentence. The phrase, rich towards God, is not about your pledge card to the church. I'm sure you've seen the meme from the journalist and Presbyterian minister, Chris Hedges. It came from a much longer interview at a conference where Hedges spoke on and this was the title of his lecture, The Myth of Human Progress and the Collapse of Complex Societies. The meme form that was plucked from the interview, he said this, You don't have to, as I did, spend three years at Harvard Divinity School and realize that Jesus didn't come to make us rich. And he certainly didn't come to make Pat Robertson and Joel Osteen rich. And I'll even add to that, or make FPCLG moderately wealthy. No, the phrase rich toward God is not about shifting your portfolio or your estate planning to give more to the church, and not so much to your selfish, ungrateful, ne'er-do-well children. It's about recalibrating how we consider value and inheritance. The problem with prosperity gospel isn't that there are goofballs that have mansions and jets and swimming pools and movie stars. It's that their accumulation becomes a validation of their message. It only validates the heresy that God deals primarily in material wealth. Being rich toward God is not shifting material wealth from your bank account to your preacher's portfolio. That's maybe even hard for me to say, but it's true. Being rich towards God is redefining what we mean by wealth. It's calculating value in the way that God determines value. So rich towards God means that when we turn our hearts and lives towards God, suddenly in the light that God gives, all that we have and all that we are is reappraised according to divine currency. And also hear me plainly when I say it's not about making a virtue of poverty either. Jesus is not saying here that the rich man was bad because he was rich. In the parable God says you're a fool. God does so when the man only becomes content because he has too much. What does he say? He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, 
whose will they be? Why wasn't he happy and content all of those other years? The rich man was a poor soul because he was not content until he had too much. And when he finally allowed himself contentment, that was the evening he died. It's a sad story, not because he died rich. It's a sad story because he lived poor. Now, I don't need to tell you we are living in an extremely anxious time. We are living in anxious times. This past Tuesday, Danny and I were driving back from her chemo appointment. Twice each week, we drive the same route past the same gas stations. And so that's four times we take exactly the same path. And since this project started ten weeks ago, I've been tracking gasoline prices. In the past two weeks, I've said out loud, look, the gas prices are falling twice a week, both directions. Finally, Danny said, you know what? You sound like an old man. I defended myself by saying, I know. But look, it's almost a dollar cheaper than it was in June. Besides, that shifts the potential control in the House and Senate in the November midterm elections. Then he said, it's not that you're noticing the price. It's that you have to say something about it every time we drive past the gas stations. Makes you sound like an old guy grumping about gas prices. I have to admit, she was right. To recalibrate value is to think how you measure the grounds of your contentment. I believe we are struggling with the anxiety because our hope for contentment is grounded on shifting outcomes that have not yet happened. If you are concerned about inflation, that's reasonable. The economy is a riddle. But if inflation has you functionally anxious, if you cannot allow yourself to be content even in the midst of inflation, you've got a problem because your contentment calibration is out of whack. What that means is you will not permit yourself the luxury of relaxing and being merry until the CPI is down below 2%, or your parents' estate is finally settled, or until, I don't know, fill in the blank. If you're waiting for some external indicator to give you permission to be content, you're sounding like a grumpy old man. In fact, God says, you're a fool. How much better are the words of the psalmist in Psalm 49, where we started this morning in our call to worship. In the complex world of governance, inflation, instability, the possibility of insurrection, even war, what did King David do? In Psalm 49, he put on a little music and gave it some thought. He wrote, My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the harp. Why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear in times of trouble? Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.